0: Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour and we've got some more great guests Lined up for you today, we'll be talking about stories that are making the news here in Ireland and around the world in business and in politics. First up, we'll be talking about the ongoing battle between Donald Trump and Joe Biden in the US. It looks like Donald Trump has this week guaranteed his position as the Republican nominee. And Jamie Smith, the US Energy Editor for the Financial Times, will be here to talk about the new boss at BP. Later in the show, we'll be discussing the challenges of getting people back to the office because... A recent case in the UK shined a light on the problems that some employers are still facing in convincing their employees to go back. To discuss this case, I'm going to be joined by Michael O'Dwyer, who's the chief UK business correspondent at the FT, and Chris Kane, the author of Where Is My Office? But for now, though, you can get in touch with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Well, this week here in Ireland, we battled through the storms and over in the US, Donald Trump stormed through his battles in Iowa and New Hampshire. Here he is speaking after the New Hampshire victory.
1: This is a fantastic state. This is a great, great state. You know, we won New Hampshire three times now. Three. three. We win it every time. We win the primary, we win the generals. We've won it and it's a very, very special place to me. It's very important.
0: Caroline Vaquiel of The Hill in Washington has been watching everything very closely as usual and she joins me on the line now. Caroline, thank you so much for being back with us today here on News Talk.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Mandy.
0: Caroline, just take us through what happened in those two meetings this week. Were there any surprises for you or did everything go pretty much how you were expecting?
2: So, you know, with the Iowa caucus last week and with the New Hampshire primary this week, it in a lot of ways sort of affirmed where the polling was. Um, you know, neither Florida Governor Ron DeSantis nor former UN ambassador Nikki Haley had ever been able to poll, outpoll former President Trump. And so we saw Iowa and New Hampshire these two weeks sort of reflect that and, you know, sort of further cementing Trump's grip on the party. Although I think what is worth noting is that while Trump won by 30 points against DeSantis in Iowa, he won by about 11 points in New Hampshire against Haley. And so, you know, I think it is fair to say that uh, Nikki Haley was able to sort of consolidate more support among independent and undeclared voters, which could be a warning sign for Trump because he's going to need some of the same voters if he becomes the eventual GOP presidential nominee heading into November.
0: Mm. Now, Ron DeSantis dropping out um, was a little bit of a surprise. They didn't expect that. Um, Where did his votes go? Did that help Nikki Haley or did it help Trump? Where did they manifest themselves?
2: Well, for DeSantis, you know, he dropped out, as you, and as you mentioned, it was a bit of a surprise happening just days before the New Hampshire primary. Um, but, of course, his, his campaign saw the writing on the wall that they were not going to fare well in New Hampshire. And I think there was some sort of scrambling beforehand, um, trying to relocate, you know, a majority of his team to South Carolina, thinking that might be the next best place that he could play, and then ultimately deciding against that. And DeSantis, you know, also very quickly in that video that he posted on X, Mm. formerly Twitter, endorsing Trump and dropping out. So, you know, I am at and I I think from the polling, we can tell a lot of those supporters have um, kind of probably moved their way towards uh, towards Trump, um, especially with DeSantis's endorsement. I'm sure that Nikki Haley has also uh, gotten a little bit of a raise, possibly um, with maybe some of those voters, seeing her as now the only Trump alternative in the race. But it is certainly Trump's to win or lose at this point.
0: Mm. And Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. Yeah, I guess the the win for Trump wasn't as meteoric as maybe some people might have imagined. And um, gave a little bit of hope to her, but it was a comprehensive win nonetheless. Now you mentioned independent votes, and um, just give us an idea about how important that was in New Hampshire and how important it could be for Trump should he become the um the eventual candidate, which is looking likely now for the Republican Party, and um, because if that scenario uh, actually happens then people who are vehemently opposed to Donald Trump now within the Republican Party um, may not vote for him. They'll vote for someone else. But just I want to get your 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 view of the importance of independent voters in New Hampshire and and what it might mean for the wider race.
2: Definitely. Um, So New York, uh, New Hampshire is is unique in that undeclared voters um, can vote in whichever primary they want. And Given that Republicans had more of a contested primary, you know, we saw more undeclared voters uh, weighing in in that primary. Uh, and I think, look, New Hampshire definitely has a little bit of a different uh, electorate from Iowa when we think about Republicans and those who are voting in, this, you know, in these uh, early nominating sure. contests on the Republican side. Um, but I think New Hampshire sort of does underscore to that point that you mentioned, um, that independent voters, undeclared voters are going to be critical for Trump. And, you know, he lost, you know, critical voting blocks in 2020, like suburban women, for example, like independents. Um, And so we can kind of at least read a little bit into the tea leaves here that the fact that, you know, on the one hand, it's clear that Trump had a double digit win. Haley was, you know, clearly lost that primary and that was a blow to her campaign. But on the other hand, Trump is still going to need those cohort of undeclared and independent voters in order to beat Joe Biden and, you know, keep this race tight. Now, I think another kind of factor to sort of look at is because, you know, President Biden and former President Trump sort of look like they're they're expected to have a rematch heading into 2024. Even though Trump may not um, fare well with sort of undeclared or independent voters right now, I think there's also voter fatigue around having another Biden-Trump rematch. Mm. And Biden has his own struggles as well, voters pointing to his age. Um, pointing to, uh, you know, the low approval ratings. And so, you know, it's also possible that voters are kind of contending with whether or not to even vote in this, you know, presidential election, given that these are two candidates that maybe voters feel like they're not enthusiastic around backing either one.
0: Yeah. And that's exactly what I wanted to, to ask you about next, which is the fact that the parties seem determined to elect these two people as their representatives, uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden again, and have a rerun of 2020. Like, how out of step is that, in your view, with the thoughts of the American people? Or is it um, actually what the American people want? Um, because at the moment, you have these two parties Determined to push forward with these two candidates, if you just look at the Republican Party on its own, we've seen Ron DeSantis, who was sort of a Trump light character, if you like, and then we've also seen Nikki Haley, who was the polar opposite to Trump. Um, they they haven't succeeded from within the Republican Party. Um, is it a is it is it are the parties out of lockstep with the public, um, or do you think that the that that this is something that the public will? eventually um, fall down on party grounds with and actually come out and vote as they did in 2020?
2: I think it's definitely a little bit of a nuanced picture with both parties. I think that Trump's win in Iowa and New Hampshire, just talking about Republicans for a second, I think does underscore that there are a lot of Republicans that are still really enamored with the former president. And, you know, it is not going to be surprising if he sails to a victory in South Carolina, again, particularly by double digits, which is where polls have him in the Palmetto State right now. Um, I think that the Republican primary and that electorate is, of course, very different from the larger general election electorate that's going to be voting in November. And for Republicans, um, especially those that want to see an alternative to the former president, that's always been a particular struggle, is that on the one hand, there are Republicans that are very enamored with Trump, but then on the other hand, someone like Haley is a little bit more of a moderate Republican, and you see her faring better against President Biden in a matchup, um, in the general election matchup, hypothetically. And so, you know, you're sort of seeing the primary electorate is very different than the actual general voting electorate, and you know, also kind of something to keep in note, for example, in New Hampshire and in other in some other states, you know, undeclared or independent voters can vote in those primaries or caucuses. But that's not always the case with every report uh, Republican nominating contest. And so you are sort of seeing mixed signals, I think. But you are sort of seeing a crack in that foundation among Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there is also, you know, clearly voter fatigue. I mean, you hear this line that you know, we're, we're going to see two nearly 80-year-old, you know, Republican, um, two nearly 80-year-old men who are being uh, the, re- the respective nominees of their parties is, is what it looks to be in November. And I think that, you know, I think one thing that Democrats have to keep in mind is trying to underscore and try to enthuse their base. Because I think at the end of the day, it's going to be a matter of which base can really enthuse uh you know, against the other in terms of trying to get that turnout. Um, and, and so we'll sort of see the that's the that's looming question in November of, of how that's going to all play out. Mm.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. And I'm speaking to Caroline Vakil of The Hill um, in Washington. And we're talking about what happened this week in the U.S. Um, uh Caroline, I want to stick with uh, Nikki Haley if I can for just a second because I want to get your views on how you feel she is as a candidate, um, number one. Number two, she um, has continued in the campaign despite the fact that many people felt after New Hampshire she would fold. Let's just take a quick listen to what she had to say after the New Hampshire primary.
2: Well, I have news for all of them. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go.
0: So listening to that, um, Caroline, why is she continuing? Um, what is in it for her to to plow on? And do you see that she will eventually drop out or she's going to keep going with these primaries? As you said it there in that clip, this is the beginning, not the end. But really, is it the end for her?
2: Listen, uh, heading into South Carolina, which is sort of seen as the next big state um, Republican primary test right now, given that Nevada is sort of going through a Dual situation of caucus and primary. Um, it's going to be uh, an increasingly challenging path for for Nikki Haley. I mean, I think you know, for her, she is the only major candidate left who is uh, seen as a viable alternative to Trump. Um, I think there are certainly uh, moderate Republicans, those never Trumpers, who want to see her stick it out, particularly and in continue into the long haul in case something happens with Trump legally, he gets indicted, perhaps something health-wise may may come up, um, given he's 77, um, and and just having her as a a backup. Um, But also I think, you know, at the same time, polling has suggested that Trump is leading her, for example, in South Carolina by double digits. Mm. And I think it would also be difficult for her to stay in the race after South Carolina, her home state, if she gets um, if she loses a third time in a row, um, of course, this is a little bit of a question about donors and the appetite that donors have for keeping a candidate in the race. But it's also a question about viability. And at what point do you decide that, you know what, I'm, I'm going to drop out, coalesce around um, who seems to be the presumptive uh, Republican nominee um, but at this point, she she feels that she has uh, the momentum and maybe energy left to uh, shock critics or, or skeptics. Um, but that runway is becoming a little bit more narrow, particularly also because I think had she won New Hampshire or come within single digits, I think that would have been more of a shock. Mm. Um, at the same time, Trump has taken a lot of, a lot of time in, in criticizing her and, and slamming her. And so uh, even though he should have been celebrating uh, his win in New Hampshire, you could also argue that he's, he still sees her as, as a threat in some ways.
0: Yeah, he he definitely seems to have been riled and annoyed by some of her comments. So she has the the possibility of getting under his skin, maybe. Um, you mentioned momentum there, and that's really important in elections. We, we all know that. Um, and if she's to lose another one, who can say what's going to happen? But what is extraordinary, really, and we spoke about this before, Caroline, is how Donald Trump has managed to use his court cases and his various uh, different legal challenges as a stage and a set piece for his campaigning. He's just getting better in that poll of polls that we saw last week. If it came to uh, a neck and, uh, a one-to-one race with him and Joe Biden now, uh, they're neck and neck. And with everything that's going on in the background legally, that's surprising to us. But maybe this is part of his unique talent to turn every um every difficulty into an opportunity to to campaign
2: i think that the first indictment in new york from the manhattan district attorney really set into motion what i think a lot of republicans feel which is they think that trump is being unfairly weapon, you know, mm. targeted that this, you know, justice department is weaponizing itself against the former president and that they're out to get him and even though some of these later indictments have kind of um, been a little bit more damning in terms of their allegations against Trump, I think it, um, in a lot of ways it's sort of bolstering this idea that he's being unfairly targeted um, by his political you know, opponents or by the government. And you know, speaking to uh, evangelical leaders, for example, and talking to them a little bit about why we see, for example, evangelical voters who you might think uh, ha- or would be antithetical to the former president, you know, these leaders, for example, say, hey, they, they see him as a fighter and they see these indictments really boosting their argument that he's going to fight for them and really that he's being un- you know, unfairly targeted. Um, and so I think that that's kind of why we're seeing that play out a bit. Now, of course, the, the big question here is what happens if he gets um, you know convicted? Um you know that is sort of the other part flip side to this that we don't know necessarily is is going to um, sort of affect things in terms of you know whether he can be president you know what happens around that time how do voters including republicans feel but i think at this point i think it's kind of showing that trump is a bit of a, of a teflon figure you know politically speaking um and you know what what democrats or maybe undeclared voters might feel as a turn off and you know having someone who's indicted four times running for president You know, Republicans say, hey, he's being unfairly targeted and and we have to stick up for him.
0: Yeah, he's for sure broken the mould and all of the rules as well. You can't apply any of the normal logic to him. So maybe um, in everything that you've said there, maybe that's why Nikki Haley needs to hang on and I suppose it'll come down to whether or not she can continue with her credibility and also her donors uh, to see this out. But uh, Caroline, as ever, it's been enlightening and I know you've had a very busy week so thank you very much for taking the time out today to come and share all of your thoughts with us. That was Caroline Vakil of The Hill. Caroline, thank Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much, Mandy.
0: You're listening to News Talks taking stock. After the break, a new broom at energy giant BP. Jamie Smith from the Financial Times will be joining us to tell us what he's like and what it would mean for the company. welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, BP has appointed a new CEO. His name is Murray Ockencloss and he takes charge of the oil major after months of being its caretaker in the wake of turmoil and scandal that was unleashed by the departure and resignation of his predecessor, Bernard Looney. Well, to find out what the appointment has meant for the company and to look at the wider industry and a people pipeline problem that the industry might have in the future. I'm joined now by Jamie Smith, who is the US Energy Editor for the Financial Times. Jamie, welcome back to Taking Stock. Hello, Mandy. Now, Jamie, last time we spoke, Bernard Looney had been quite unceremoniously dumped or resigned, whatever way you want to look at it. It cost them a lot of money. This is a very high stakes industry. They're they're paid really well, but the departures can be brutal. You might just remind us um, about Bernard Looney and and how he exited the business.
1: So, yeah, uh, Bernard Looney, uh, the Irish Uh, former CEO of BP, uh, about four, maybe five months ago now, um, there was a very surprising announcement that he was going to be standing down uh, from his role. And this was because he failed to properly disclose uh, relationships we'd had with some of his colleagues to the board of directors of BP. So there had been actually an investigation previous to this announcement and he had been given the all clear, but then another issue emerged and uh, Mr. Looney had to stand down. So that was a big shock for BP. Um, you know, it's a 114-year-old company. You know, it's, uh, it's perceived to be, you know, a very stable, you know, uh, company in an old industry. Um, but actually, if you look back at its history, it has lost three of the past four CEOs um, you know, in in, in surprising manners. Mm. So uh, I think that's the first challenge that uh, the new CEO Murray Ockencloss is going to have. He needs to sort of uh, get a more stable Uh, situation in terms of leadership at the company.
0: Yeah, and I mean, by all accounts, he's a Canadian and he seems to be a very uh, low-key and unassuming figure. Maybe tell us a bit about him within the company. Who is he? What was he doing before he was elevated to this position?
1: So, yeah, he's he's a real old-timer at BP. He's been there for more than 25 years. He's a former tax analyst. Uh, and he was working in a company called Amoco, which then merged with BP, and that's how he joined uh, the company. Um, So really, he worked his way up through the company. He worked for Tony Hayward, a former CEO, as chief of staff, and that really helped to propel his elevation uh, up to the top of the company. And then under Bernard Looney, um, he took on the role of chief financial officer in charge of you know, all the finances. So he was definitely seen as more of a backroom figure, uh, less flamboyant than Bernard Looney. You know, uh, analysts say he was a real man for the financial detail, Mm. but perhaps not for, you know, the public facing side of the role, which, you know, is a key issue for chief executives. So I think that will be something that uh, Murray Ockencloss really have to, to work on. And that is proving he can, uh, be the the leader, the head guy, the person that's really talking to the investors, the media all the time. So it'll be interesting to see how he performs. Yeah,
0: very much so. And Bernard Looney, uh, he himself was a as a big character operating really well in the media. And one of the things he did as soon as he was appointed was to, you know, really charge ahead with BP becoming um, to the fore of this um, transition as a a global oil and gas company to um, lower carbon energy. Wasn't always loved by the people on the board of BP, particularly when the energy crisis happened. But do you think um, Mr. Ockencloss is of the same ilk? Will we see more of this from him?
1: I think the appointment of Auchincloss really means that that strategy with which Looney uh, outlined is going to remain in force. I mean, uh, Murray Auchincloss was actually one of the key architects of this strategy, to be frank, and his appointment really suggests that the board are pushing behind it. So BP, um, you know, previously made the vast amount mark- Of its money through oil and gas, you know, it still does, but it is trying to diversify uh, at a faster pace than some of its rivals, Mm. and particularly its US rivals, Exxon and Chevron. You know, BP said it's moving from being an integrated oil company towards being an integrated energy company. And what that means is more clean energy like wind, solar, biofuels. And they've really been trying to roll that out. Now, whenever we had the Russia, U- Russia's invasion of Ukraine and oil prices really spiked and gas prices spiked, there was a slight adjustment to the, uh, the targets there. So BP didn't step away from its strategy, but it did adjust how much oil it was going to pump, you know, over the next few years. So they've already had to adjust the strategy slightly, mm. but I think this appointment suggests that they're going to stick with it. Um, And we won't see a complete reversal of the sort of move towards being an integrated energy provider with more uh, clean energy.
0: Before we move on to looking at the wider industry and what's happening there, Jamie, one of the other things I noticed when I was reading about um, this appointment is um, the propensity for BP to appoint from within. What does that say about the culture of the the company itself?
1: (sighs) Yeah, I mean, it's because obviously uh, us journalists were running around <laughs> over the last four months trying to find out, well, who's being interviewed for this job? And there were some external candidates interviewed. You know, one was the BAA, BAE system CEO, Charles Woodburn, you know, who would have been an outsider. There was a couple of other outsiders, according to my colleagues who follow BP more closely than I do, who were also interviewed. Um, but... Uh, in the end, BP went for an insider. They've never appointed an outside candidate in their 114-year history. I think that says a lot about the sort of uh, the conservative nature of the company. Um, for one, uh, I think if they had have needed to do a big change of strategy, or if they felt had to do a big change of strategy, then they might have actually taken the jump to mm-hmm. appoint. Them. Spider, but no, they went internally in the end.
0: No break in tradition there. So, if you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm speaking with Jamie Smith, who is the U.S. energy editor for the Financial Times newspaper. Um. Jamie, I wanted to turn to something else that you've been looking at of late and it's the lack of interest um, in this particular uh, industry, in the oil and gas industry by a new generation of students. Maybe just talk us through why you think it's getting harder to get people into the oil and gas industry at the moment. I
1: think, you know, when I was researching this, I, I went and talked to a lot of the professors at colleges and what they're seeing is that there's a lot less young people applying for the petroleum engineering uh courses in college and um, you also see a big drop off in the membership of the Society for Petroleum Engineers globally. So uh, there's been a a 30% 30 fall in membership there uh, between 2015 and 2022 and the average age is going up. So young people don't seem to be being attracted to the oil and gas industry. Now I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, One of them is that young people are actually worried about global warming. Um, So when it comes to their career choices, they want to work for companies that they feel aligns with their values. And, you know, oil and gas executives freely admit their industry suffers from negative perceptions. You know, it's linked to pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, anyone who watches the news, you see the wildfires in California, Hawaii, other extreme weather events. So young people, you know, take that into consideration when they're thinking about their future careers. There's another more practical reason, and that's, well, young people are also concerned that maybe there isn't going to be a long-term future for them right. in the oil and gas sector. Mm. You know, the, the world at COP28 recently talked about phasing out, moving away from fossil fuels. Um, so that means there's going to be less jobs and less opportunities. So why are they going to go into a career which, you know, might be, um, might be heading into a sunset industry, as we'd say? There's one final reason, mm-hmm. I mean. Basically, are the oil and gas industry good employers? Well, they do tend to pay very well, actually, and more than other industries for certain jobs. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. it does suffer from booms and busts. And, you know, it's a cyclical type of industry. When the oil price goes up, you get a lot of drilling and production and investment. When the oil price goes down, then you get a slump and you see a lot of people laid off. Mm. Uh, That tends to be something that turns people off.
0: Yeah, I was talking to to geologists the other day and that's another area that's suffering from a lack of of students and applications and it it is, they felt, because it's largely associated with this industry. But you would think that, you know, geologists are going to be needed for renewable energy and for excavations and stuff. So um, maybe there's a a knock-on effect for industries like that. But is it actually impacting the industry? Are we seeing any problems yet because of the lack of interest?
1: One of the very interesting things was some universities now are beginning to, to ban the oil and gas companies from uh, their careers fairs. So I think there's seven or eight uh, universities in the UK, Swansea University's one, where it's just making it more difficult for the oil and gas companies to get access to the students. Now, the larger companies say that they aren't having major problems recruiting. They're able to offer big salaries, And they're still tempting people into their organisations. But smaller companies say they are finding it more difficult. They're having to pay more. And that is competitive pressure. So I think it is actually a real tangible problem. And you can see the industry beginning to look at new sort of ideas on how to get young people more interested.
0: Mm. It's funny, during the week I, I was on the train and I was looking over the shoulder shamelessly, of some young student who was scrolling away on his phone. And I couldn't figure out why he was watching an ad from Exxon Mobile on a, on a Dublin train. But I guess he, he was probably on his way to a university in town. Maybe they're reaching out to them that way as well, trying to kind of, you know, get into students directly via new platforms and stuff.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a trend that we're beginning to see. So one of my colleagues in the FT, He did a a, a long story on this and how Shell and other energy companies were using TikTok and Twitch and other platforms which are popular with social media to reach out directly and try and change the perception of the industry. And, you know, they're also pointing to the uh, divisions within their company that are pivoting towards low carbon technology and clean energy. So they're really trying to show that they have something to offer. Uh, I mean, there is a point to to that in that, uh, and I think you mentioned it, you know, um, that these new low-carbon technologies will require some of the same skills that oil and gas companies have been using and the people working them have been using. Geologists, for example. You've got carbon capture and storage technologies, you know, which require geologists. You have hydrogen, which is quite a similar industry to oil and gas. So there are, um, you know, key skills which can be moved across relatively easily. And, you know, some of the university professors have acknowledged this and they're changing the names of their courses Mm. to reflect these low-carbon technologies. And they're changing the composition of what were previously petroleum engineering um, degrees. They're now adding components on these new low-carbon technologies.
0: Yeah, so a bit like BP really, um, repositioning itself, trying to present itself in a different way so that they can continue to be attractive to, to people in the same way that we're going to need gas for the future. Just finally um, on this, Jamie, before I let you go, when you look at this, stand back and look at this, this is a kind of a win for, for um, the people who have been campaigning against climate change. It's worked. The new generation doesn't want to work in this industry.
1: I think you have to say, yes, it is. I mean, it really has created a very negative perception of the industry, and perhaps the industry hasn't helped itself uh, in the past either. You know, oil and gas companies previously were very reluctant to go out publicly and talk about their industry, talk about what they were doing and engage. Um, That is beginning to change. You're beginning to see quite a, a, a stronger public relations element to it. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that develops in, in the future. But yes, you'd have to say it is a bit of a win for the campaigners against uh, our campaigners for climate change.
0: Well, Jamie, as ever, it's been enlightening and a pleasure to talk to you again. That was Jamie Smith, the US Energy Editor for the Financial Times. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. you listen to News Talks Taking Stock. Up next, where is my office? Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston. Now, we've all seen the push and pull in recent years between employees and employers when it comes to getting people back to the office. But could a recent UK court uh, case revealed that actually hybrid and remote working hasn't entirely settled down when it comes to that relationship between the employers and their employees. Well, I'm joined now by Michael O'Dwyer, who's the chief UK business correspondent with the Financial Times, and also Chris Kane, author of Where Is My Office? Chris, Michael, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Nice to be here. Hi, Mandy.
0: Michael, I'm going to start with you because you were writing about this uh, in the Financial Times. I was fascinated by this case. It it ruled a a while ago, but the papers were published last week. Maybe just tell us about the case, who took the case and what did they want?
4: Absolutely. This was a case about a woman who was working in a quite senior role in the UK financial regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority. And She had been happily working from home um, and fulfilling her duties and fulfilling them well, according to her performance reviews and her own managers. Um, But she didn't want to come back to the office despite being told that she should do so. And she applied to um, full time working from home and that was rejected. And so she basically took a legal case against her employer saying that she should be able to work from home. Full time. Now she was in quite a senior role. She was being paid about 140,000 pounds a year in salary, Um, and she was managing directly managing four people, and she was indirectly managing, I think, a a team of about ten. So quite a significant amount of responsibility. And essentially, the the employment tribunal looked at this case and said no, that she wasn't entitled to be uh, demanding that she could work from home full time if her employer. Um, deemed that was not appropriate. And the judge made some very interesting comments, which, which I'm sure we can talk about in a wider discussion. But he, he said things like, um, you know, that, that working from home didn't necessarily allow for rapid discussion or for people to have as good nonverbal communication as they might have in the office. And so he said that there were weaknesses with remote working, even if There was technology that made it possible um, and which we've all obviously been using for quite some time. So I think this case was interesting, not necessarily because it sets a a great binding legal precedent um, for all of time, but because it shows that this issue is, you know, is becoming um, more and more difficult for uh, employers to manage. Um, in terms of their relationships with their staff. And the judge even said as much. He said, look, there's going to be plenty more legal cases um, like this one in the future. And I'm sure that won't just be the case in, in the UK. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be the same uh, in Ireland and right around the globe, I'm sure.
0: Mm. And Michael, just before I move on to, to Chris to talk about some of the bits in the article, um, what's the status of the case? As you said there, it's not necessarily a landmark ruling, is it? But it will be used for guidance, I guess.
4: No, I think, I think my understanding of it is that it's not, it's not sort of binding legal precedent. This isn't a high court case that, that other courts would have to follow. It's an employment case. It's on its own facts. Um, but it is an indication of the types of arguments that are happening between employees and employers. And it's an indication of the types of factors that judges might consider um, in, in, in um, you know, in reviewing and, and assessing these types of claims as and when they do end up inevitably before the courts in some
0: cases. Mm. Chris, I'll bring you in here. Michael has, has outlined what the case was about, what the ruling has happened. But I suppose what we're trying to delve into today is maybe we thought that the whole hybrid remote working model had bottomed out, but it clearly hasn't because there are people like this lady who don't want to do any kind of hybrid working. Do you think that um, we're going to see more of these type of cases now as we get to the, the, the sticky end of business?
3: great question i think this case will be the first of many um covid unleashed the genie of consumer choice as it relates to how people work who they work for where they work when they work and if you look at the particular case and a great piece michael it really highlighted a a very tricky area not just for employers and employees but for landlords for cities for for governments but it's truly ironic that all of the evidence was taken virtually. Yes, over that's teams. right. The case was all heard online, wasn't and, it? And, you know, there's been a lot of argument about performance and the, this particular manager felt that um, uh, her, her line manager had felt that she had performed well, albeit she was working remotely. And, you know, she made the case or argued that she didn't feel disadvantaged by working remotely. But I think the um, this whole case for um, working remotely full-time, I would agree with Michael's view that it was right for the judge to reject full-time remote working. But he also made a very important point that each case has to be, and each situation has to be, will be different and will be judged on its merits. And I think that unveils on, on vale a much bigger issue for all of us a certain generation which were used to traditional work of, you know, get an employable position, get a pension, get a good start in life and all of that um, I think we've seen the end of one size fits all employment models mm. and that's the really big significant and whilst many bosses have longed for a return to life as we knew it pre-Covid there simply isn't any going back. Yeah
0: Michael, one of the things that, is, that, that it does demonstrate this case is that there's a change in attitude um, from employers toward employees for sure because I think there was a time post-COVID we were trying to find what works best for the employees everybody's sensitive about the needs here in Ireland we're at full employment difficult to get people now but um you make a very valid point about some of the things that other companies were doing to try and entice people back into the office. Maybe take us through some of the initiatives that the large banks and, and big organisations are doing to try and get people back in.
4: Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a, there's a bit of a carrot and a stick situation going on here because some 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 of some of the interventions to get people back to the office are, are quite positive in terms of trying to make the office. More welcoming um, for for staff, and that can extend to things like free food for, for staff in some of the some of the big banking groups, for example. Um, but also, um, you know, on on, on the more um, on the other on side that errs towards compulsion, you you definitely have this this element of you know some employers beginning to track employee attendance more rigor more rigorously, um, and you know, in in some cases, actually, you know. It, it, Tre- threatening disciplinary action if people if people aren't aren't following um the policies or the guidelines that they have have in place, my colleagues in the u s had a story this week um, about bank of america um, and this was uh, related to u s staff but allegedly sending letters of education uh, was the phrase that they used <laughs> for these letters that they sent to their employees um who hadn't been showing up to the office and warning them that you know they were going to face disciplinary action if they didn't start meeting um meeting the um, meeting the requirements and um, for how often they have to be in now of course the word, words or phrase letters of education might sound a bit orwellian, but I think the uh, the the overall trust of, of 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 what they were telling their employees is not unique to them even if even if the phrasing was
0: yeah, and it definitely di- displays a sort of sensitivity, but at the end of the day they 're going to tell people like this is your contractual obligation, Chris, one of the um defenses that employees have at the moment is their contract, you know. Um, if it's not specified, you have to be in the office. and But all those contracts are going to filter through. But do you think that we're likely to see demands in new contracts for sole remote working like this lady wanted? Like if I'm starting uh, with you in a negotiation, is it reasonable for me to say, look, I'm brilliant, you know, you can't get me anyplace else um, and I want to work from home all the time. Do you see any of that?
3: Yes, you do. And the, the issue is that it's just so dispersed across industry sectors, uh, the public sector. Like if you take the UK, uh, the civil service last year, I think the amount of people there opting within their contracts for some form of homeworking. And this is where the devil is in the detail and how we use phrases. Like remote working typically defines somebody working for an organization completely remotely. Um, then you have this issue of what do you mean to work from home? And then you've got this uh, hybrid label. And in Britain, um, many people are now regarded as they're sort of, by somewhat known as a, a rude title, which is the, the short run of Tuesday, Wednesdays and Thursdays. Mm. Like I was in Bishopsgate delivering a speech on Wednesday and at 10 o'clock outside Liverpool Street Station, I could cross the road because there was no traffic. So something has happened between the relationship between people and place and staff and employers. And it's we're in the midst of a massive reorganisation of work models. Mm.
0: Michael, you're you're the UK um, business correspondent, the chief correspondent for the Financial Times, so you're across all business. You also make a very valid point, and Chris referred to it earlier, that this is not just about the relationship between employers and employees. It's about office space. It's about commercial value. It's about hollowed out cities. Um, unserviced suburbs there's lots of implications for this new norm um, what I'm trying to get a sense of from you having you know the the bandwidth to look at business in its totality do you think that we've bot- bottomed out or is the the new perspective from business look I've got to make this commercial space work for me or I've got to take care of my people now is there is there still that sort of push and pull between the two?
4: There is. And look, every industry and every, every company, frankly, will be different. And some of them are using this as a way to attract staff by allowing them to have more flexibility. And others say, such as some of the investment banks that you mentioned, are saying that, you know, that this, this, is, this is our culture. We need people to be in working at close quarters. It makes communication easier. It helps the next generation to learn faster, a lot of them say. And it means you'll get access to better assignments you'll be more likely to be considered for pay, and pay rises and promotions. Some CEOs are publicly saying that. But it's not just, you're right, it's not just the companies themselves. If you look at the City of London um, and the financial district there, the authorities are really trying to um, help and work with hospitality businesses to try and make them more of a seven-day um, seven industry catering to, 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 to tourists, even in the financial district, more than before to try and basically make up for the revenue that they're losing from people who are no longer in the office on a Monday or a Friday, buying their sandwich, buying their coffee, having a pint with colleagues after after work. So the, the implications of this are, are are absolutely massive and extend it right throughout the economy, including, um, as, you, as you mentioned, the commercial offices and commercial property space. Um, a lot of companies are, you know, as, as and when their leases are coming up, um, for for renewal in the UK are looking at downsizing, sometimes getting nicer offices, but smaller offices. Mm. Then pitching pitching to employees, you know, come in two, three days a week, the office is going to be more of a venue, more of a a place to interact with colleagues, have nice coffee bars um, and other things to tempt people into work. And I think, you know, employers are having to work a bit harder to reimagine office spaces um, and, and try and, frankly, attract, attract um, their employees to come in where pre- previously it was just a given that they turned up.
0: Mm. If you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. I'm speaking with Michael O'Dwyer, who's Chief UK Business Correspondent with the Financial Times. And here in studio with me is Chris Kane, who is author of Where Is My Office? And we're talking about an article that Michael wrote uh, about a UK court case uh, uh, and a manager who wanted to work from home and the consequences of all that remote working. Chris, And back to you. I, I read something that you you wrote quite recently and I think you were referencing John John Healy in it, Nobody Shouted Stop, just back-referencing that point that Michael was making there about the hollowed-out cities and beyond our narrow view of, as employer and employee, the civic questions around this. Do you think that politicians are active enough in trying to shape the type of new working landscape, new cities that Michael was talking about there, or is business sort of being left out there
3: to it on its own? God, that's a very big question. Um I can make an Irish English comparison in that Ireland has and published some years back a remote working policy after COVID and talked about the three pillars of the right to work remotely, digital hubs, and employee sort of rights and creating um, hubs to support all of that and the technology to support it. Um, Britain seems to be a bit more in flux. Um, the mayor of Paris, Anne Hildego, has talked about the 15 minute city to reduce. Um, commuting, so there, there, there's nothing settled. I think we're in the midst of a big experiment to redefine work in the context of office work, which will have direct implications for the cities, for Cbds, for transport, for infrastructure. This is much bigger, and I think it's something that politicians need to wake up and look at because. Uh, You you take an Irish context and uh, the the homelessness side of things and the shortage of homes, maybe if we rebalanced our our little country, um, maybe then we might have a better country. Mm. And, you know, the same can be said for Britain in terms of how the Southeast relates to the rest of the rest of the UK. So Mm. there are some big macro implications here, which nobody has really started to grapple with.
0: Michael, Chris referenced there, UK in a bit of a flux. That's a shocker that the UK is in a bit of a flux on anything at the moment. I'm going to leave the final word to you on this. Do you think that this court case and the ruling stemming from it has caused a little ripple effect and will prompt more people or, or embolden more employers?
4: Honestly, it's hard to say, so I'm going to kick for touch. But I do think what, what, what it really does is it strikes a chord with an issue that we're all living with. That we're all thinking about and talking about, with with whether that's with colleagues at work or just your friends at home. I think employers are constantly grappling with this and trying to figure out, you know, how do we balance attracting the right people, making sure that they are actually working as productively as possible, and as you said earlier, Mandy, making sure that we're not spending more than we have to on on office space at the same time. And that, that's a balance that will be different for every business but is also, I think, a story that is not yet completely finished. I think there's, there's a few chapters still to go before we see um, where it really ends up.
0: Well, I think, you know, as you've both said, the world has changed utterly and entirely since we three started our working careers. But it, it has opened up huge possibilities. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Michael O'Dwyer, Chief UK Business Correspondent with the Financial Times, and Chris Kane, the author of Where Is My Office. Thank you both very much, gentlemen, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Thank you to all of today's guests for joining us and giving us a very valuable time. The producer of Taking Stock this week was John Fardy. Simon Keane and Stephen Daunt were on research and Hugo de Silva-Scott was on sound. If you've got any comments about today's items, please email me at com. Anton is up next with all of your Sunday newspapers and lots more. But for now, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.